Hey, this is Joss Whedon um, doing uh, an unprecedented concept of a director's commentary. Um, I have a lot to say. I have no idea what it's going to be or what order it's going to come in. But um, if you like the sound of me babbling, you're in for a treat. Why on earth would I make another Avengers movie? They're really hard. It was... It was ill-advised. I see that now. But I think the most important thing about the movie is that it's mine, that it's all me, and, and that really, because I'm the director and the writer, I really created it all myself. And I, I think that's important to bear in mind, especially because while I've been talking, you've already seen the work of two other directors, um, not to mention the insanely large village, possibly metropolitan area uh, full of people who are uh, working in every frame uh, to fulfill whatever vision it was I thought I had. One thing about this movie that you're going to hear a lot is how extraordinary uh, the crew, um, the post, the pre, uh, the production people, uh, how they not just... Uh, carried or fulfilled but inspired this movie um, which begins with this rather iconic image um, a very deliberate decision on my part was to uh, to start off with the hardest thing in the movie uh, from the first one that what we refer to as the tie-in shot rather than getting the Avengers back together I wanted to say right up front no they're in it and here's the very climax of the first film. Here's the very thing you always showed up for. All of these guys in one enormous shot um, with a big slow-mo kind of uh, comic book panel moment. And my original concept had been that it would be the very first frame would be the slow motion part. Kevin Feige very rightly argued that without some context, people just wouldn't know what they were seeing um, and wouldn't appreciate it as much as they would at the end of the shot which um, uh, turned out to be very true. When I talk about uh, the other directors, uh, there was a short shot of people running up the stairs uh, that uh, my producer, Jeremy Latcham, went ahead and got um, with R.C. Cameron and Sam uh, while we were in Dover Castle, which is right here, and played as the interior of the fortress. Um, we were mostly stuck in big, beautiful rooms filled with equipment, and there are so many lovely little spaces. He said, shouldn't we go and get, um, you know, soldiers running about and show some of the stairwells and the, and the halls and all the things that make this space more than just big rooms, and uh, uh, we ended up using a lot of that footage. It was, it, was, it was just grand. And, of course, the other director I'm referring to is John Mahaffey, who is an actual director, um, the second unit director, who shot so much great footage for this movie. I shot about 100 days, he shot over 50, um, and uh, some of the more elaborate, that's another, that's another, what I was referring to before, some of the more elaborate stuff um, inevitably gets shot by second unit because um, the characters in it are CG and it requires camera setups that take hours and hours, and, and um, so on the one hand, I being the most important director, um, uh, the director of the first unit, um, and busy, you know, getting the really the heart of the piece, um, and he's getting these 
secondary shots, except that the secondary shots he was getting, I just used air quotes, you can't tell, but I did, um, were very much uh, some of the most beautiful footage that was shot in the film, and I started to feel like reaction shot Joe. I would just see these glorious things he'd stitch together, and then I'd there'd be a close-up of somebody reacting to it. I was like, that's me, I did that, I'm, I'm also a part of the team. Um, because the team is how this gets done. Um, you're going to find that's also uh, part of what we have to say in the movie. But uh, in the making of the movie, it's very much the same thing. Both of these guys, Tom Scratchman and Henry Goodman, you know, extraordinary thespians who would come in to do smaller roles. I actually said if we made a movie with only the day players, uh, they worked more than that. But just literally people who were there for just a day, um, we'd have the most star-studded cast you could work with. It's, it's wonderful. It's probably a terrible thing about the industry that you can get amazing actors to play these smaller roles in franchise films, but it works for me. So I asked the question, why would I do this? And uh, again, and the main answer was because I wanted to make a new movie, a different Avengers movie. And while providing the things that people expect from the Avengers movie, i.e. the tie-in shot um, that you saw before, I also wanted to not just tell a different story, but tell it differently. And a lot of that um, can be seen in the, um, uh, in the editing and framing and uh, um, general style, the lenses. I, I, in the first film, I was very slavish to 3D. Um, I was playing it as though, you know, anything not in the vernacular of 3D was going to be confusing for the audience. And in the couple of years in between, it became clear that that isn't really the case. And um, besides, um, 3D really spoke to the way I was used to shooting. I like wide lenses. I like understanding the space around me very clearly. Um, I didn't like a lot of heavy cutting. I liked shots that would deliberately go from one place to another, very old-fashioned. For the second film, I wanted to do something unlike anything I'd really done. Um, it's a little bit like um, the film I shot right before, Much Ado About Nothing, uh, which was kind of, you know, we had a bunch of great actors standing around speaking Shakespeare, and as often as possible, three cameras, if, you know, occasionally four, at least two, um, uh, getting them. And um, quick side note, uh, the... Mercenary who speaks right here. That was a bit I added um, very late in editing, and that's actually Jeffrey Ford, one of the editors, who just uh, did it on a mic in the room, and we liked it so well we, we kept it. Um, you're also going to hear uh, his name and Lisa Lassick's name, uh, those editors who, I don't want to say saved my life, but I just did. Um, they are so much a part of everything that works in this movie. I'm incredibly grateful. A lot of moving parts, partially because of the way um, I, uh, as I said, I wanted to shoot this differently, um, where the first one was very deliberate, this one was deliberately casual. That little yay, by the way, for which both Robert and I have been given credit was actually Jeremy Latcham again, saying he needs to make a noise there um, in post-production. And I was like, oh, no, he does. Oh, yeah, we can do it, but no one's going to hear it. Um, so he gets all the credit for that. And 
we have to talk about ILM, too, and the extraordinary work they did with the Hulk and with Ultron. Um, I mean, what they did in the first movie was amazing, but this is a completely different level. Uh, this is a real performance, and um, even with all the reference that Mark gave them, it's something that has to be crafted pixel by pixel and then made human, and I can never, I can never stop looking at these guys. Because again, with all of these cameras and this very different way of shooting, we ended up with something like that, an over, where you see just a blurry shoulder. That blurry shoulder is about as expensive as, you know, a face. It's, um, it's a very, uh, it's something we could never do in the first movie. Uh, but we talked about it um, specifically as wanting to have the Hulk play like a character in the film, not like an effect. And for, to use the same casual vernacular, when we were shooting him as we would with any of the other um, players. And their thing, the idea that Natasha has this power over the Hulk and obviously this uh, uh, budding romance with, with Banner um, really, really came from that scene. That's where it all started. Um, the idea of the lullaby as how they deal with him spiraled up into the idea that Bruce Banner and, and Natasha Romanoff are actually very similar. And um, so the scene always made perfect sense uh, to me, and we had Scarlet's side of it, um, but we really didn't have the scene until just a few weeks before we delivered the film, and um, even I was kind of stunned by the physicality, the sensuality, and the emotion of, of that encounter. Um, and it's one of those things where you all say, this will work, but then you get to feel it. And it's like nobody ever told you about it. Um, it's an extraordinary thing to work on something for two years and not understand it until you see it, or not understand the power it will have. It's fun to kill the Avengers. I recommend it. Particularly like the little twitch from the Hulk. I wanted very much the uh, sort of dying bison um, uh, kind of a little spaz with Modic thing with the um, spears sticking out of him. Um, and uh, they, gave, they gave me that. They gave me this broken shield. Look carefully at the way the shield is broken because that's actually something that... Uh, I, I put in um, for just a few people. Um, you will see that shape again at the end of the movie when Wanda tears uh, with her magic. She tears um, Ultron's vibranium chest apart. And we very deliberately uh, had her do that. I've had it come apart in the exact same shape as his vision of disaster um, because uh, we wanted to say she's great and it's great that she's so powerful but what if it wasn't great um, and in a way that one and a half people would recognize I, I think I said five people in the audience will will 
will cheer at this. And Kevin Feige said, yes, but I will be one of them. It's a big decision whether to go off on her smile or this grab. Ultimately, the grab very uh, specifically said, we have a problem, and the problem is Tony. And um, one of the things uh, that also sort of hit me late in the game is that you can really look at this film and just straight up say, Tony Stark is the villain. Um, it's not just the beard. He, um, he's a, a good man who is corrupted by his own anxiety, by this vision of a disaster, and makes what is obviously a really bad decision. And um, I spent so much time in the writing process and during filming trying to protect uh, Tony Stark, trying to make sure that he was still a heroic figure. And, um, and at one point I watched the movie and I went, you can just go ahead and lean into this, that he's now evolved, you know, into a, into a villain. Obviously he's not just that, he's redeemed. Um, and he's, uh, you know, he is a hero in so many ways, but it was um, very freeing to be able to, and I think it's not something you get to do a lot in something like this narratively, to just go ahead and say, um, your guy just might not be okay. And um, again, that's something that thematically the entire movie is about. Um, it's been commented on, and it's not by um, accident that the word monster is used um, by most of the team about either themselves or each other. Feels good, yeah? I have a Jarvis is my co-pilot sticker on my laptop because how could you not? That's one of those things that I thought of and asked for while we were shooting. Can we just throw that in? And, you know, prop guys just disappeared and came back with the perfect one. Um, and, of course, it comes right after he says, Jarvis, take the wheel. So clearly we're already leaning into the Jesus thing. And that's, um, again, not by accident. Uh, we're not saying anything specific about religion, but we are playing on Christian iconography a great deal, partially because both Tony Stark and Ultron have God complexes and partially because um, the vision himself does represent an ideal. And when he picks up the hammer, it's... I don't want to say a miracle, but it's it's playing on that that idea of, you know, when we think of that kind of religious figure, we are thinking of the best idea of ourselves, of what we wish we could be. And this play is so much about the best and worst. This little bit's a, a bit of embellishment that Robert and I came up with on the day. Um, it's always, it's always nice to be able to have people who know their characters so well that they can give you what you've asked for, but then make it feel lived in. I love this shot. It is very much of the idiom of the first movie in the sense of, look at this big expensive space, isn't it grand? Um, and I love the two of them. I did at one point uh, realize that I had sort of turned... Uh, Marie Hill into a Girl Friday in this movie uh, because there was too many heroes for her to do that much. But it all makes it all the better, I think, when she shows up uh, in her old gear, um, firing a gun like she should oughta. This shot uh, was very difficult. Again, one of the last shots we got. Um, 
Kevin is very leery of shots that feel artificial. And when you are flying with someone and you do a camera move around them, uh, you're in great danger of feeling artificial. And um, so we worked hard in the coloring and the way New York was and in the textures to try and um, uh, mitigate that and, and keep it real. And then we went right through that glass, which is a beautifully crafted effect. Um, this shot uh, is something slightly similar to what I did in my first film, Serenity, in that uh, every member of the team is in it. Not all of them speak, but they are all visible at some point. And we get basically a tour of the place. Obviously, because they come in through the A, it has only been referred to as the A-hole shot. But, um, uh, but what it is, for me, is a very important way to explain the space of... Avengers Tower to the audience. There's a bit of showing off. There's a bit of, look at all our grandeur. But um, but what I'm really doing is explaining exactly where everything is in relation to everything else, because later on we will need to know. Robots are down here, and parties over here, and um, Pietro's going to be standing on that glass later. Like, Charlie Wood designed this set, and it's the biggest and one of the most beautiful things I've ever set foot on. It is, you know, it's glorious. It's sometimes almost overwhelming. And um, and besides wanting to show the scope of it, to play into the, the epic nature of the thing, um, it allowed me to come up with gags like Pietro getting, uh, like Hawkeye shooting out the glass from under him. And uh, it allowed me to create action and, and also to just have an enormous amount of fun. Sometimes uh, the least fun. Uh, this particular space is so big and, and that sort of hollow area so empty that uh, it was sometimes difficult to shoot in to figure out what to do with people. Um, but uh, but every frame is, is such candy um, because, uh, you know, the, the work these guys put into it, uh, building it and dressing it and... Uh, and the depth in frame that you can get in these instances is um, is never not exciting. I I literally finished shooting on this set and on that day walked into a corner I had never been in uh, downstairs and was like, wait a minute, there's there's a hundred cool ideas I have for for this area, um, and that's. Uh, there are two kinds of filming that are really delightful. One is this kid in a candy store. Uh, the other is the opposite, when you have kind of an impossible space. Um, I like that very much because you become more inventive in those instances. You, you have to think on your feet. You have to let the space dictate the frame to an extent, and that makes it more real or just possibly more left of center. Um, but in this instance, I didn't mind the candy store. And the Science Brothers, as they're affectionately known, um, Anytime these guys get together, um, it's fun. They're very different in their energy as actors. By the way, give me curved glass and reflections that go on forever, and uh, there's no way I'm not shooting it. I want to apply this to the Ultron program, but Jarvis can't download a data schematic this dense. Which, by the way, was another difference in this film than anything else um, I'd shot. I would stop and say, wait a minute, we're going to get another setup. Um, we're going to do something uh, just because 
I think we can and should, and it looks cool. Generally, because of my background, I have shot exactly what I needed and nothing else. Um, on this film, I shot everything I needed, and then some things I thought I might want, which during shooting was very liberating and exciting, and because we moved so quickly, um, was not a problem for the schedule. During editing, uh, interesting side note, turned out to be the worst idea in the world, and I'm definitely going back to shooting only what I need, uh, because it, uh, that amount of choice can sometimes, like yeah, a giant set, um, can be too much. This is one of those cute little ideas. Uh, we're on a memory head track so that uh, uh, we can do four different setups in the exact same configuration and uh, tell the story quickly. And it's one of those cute ideas that takes half a day at least uh, to give you, you know, 20 seconds of, of footage. Um, so I tried to have fewer cute ideas after that. I'll continue to run variations on the interface but you should probably prepare for your guests. I'll notify you if there are any developments. Thanks, buddy. Enjoy yourself, sir. I always do. Oh, and now we get to Mr. Spader. What is this? There's not, there's no way I can say enough about pretty much anybody in this cast. But if you have to start somewhere, um, James Spader and Paul Bettany is not a bad place to start. Uh, they, um, they are so extraordinary together, so much. The people they wanted to be, and um, with James, we were creating somebody completely new. And with, with Paul, we ended up doing the same thing with the vision. Because I originally wrote the vision as Jarvis, and then went back in and realized, no, he's much more... Uh, enigmatic and interesting than that, and um, uh, and what Paul gave me was beyond my best fantasy of the vision I'd read as a kid. I didn't have a fantasy of the Ultron I'd read as a kid because he was always just kind of mad. Um, so you know, my my idea for who he would be was a sort of grand madness, a weirdness, um, and uh, um. Your intentions that line, why do you call him sir, has so much menace, um, but is also, again, one of the central themes of the movie. So much of this movie is about power and class and, um, you know, and, and privilege. I mean, we looked at this, we were like, it's literally upstairs, downstairs. Because <laughs> downstairs, you know, the Legion, who come in through the back door, upstairs, the heroes. Uh, and that scene, by the way, was uh, added in post. I um, I felt that um, we could uh, very clearly explain the problem that Ultron was having and uh, create a scene that really made you feel for Jarvis. Kevin and Jeremy, who really fought for Jarvis's presence to be increased throughout the movie. I had always intended to make him the vision. They... Um, kept insisting, uh, we want more. Uh, we want a visual. We want, um, you know, we want everyone to mourn him. We want uh, to him to be treated like a guy. And I didn't really understand the need for that the way they did. Um, and then putting it together, uh, it was clear, oh, yeah, wait a minute, this guy was 
he was there at the beginning. He was there in, in the first, you know, few minutes of the first Iron Man. And people have a bond with him that is, uh, um, that is palpable and very human. There are many versions of this scene, uh, some of them including uh, the actresses. Uh, one of the great things about uh, working with this many stars is you never know who you're going to get. Um, what schedule is going to work out, who's suddenly going to become available, or, you know. Um, and so, uh, um, but when it became apparent that uh, neither was going to show up, I thought it was important to plant a flag on that and say, um, well, that's, uh, that's, um, that's something that registers with our guys, and the best way to do that was to have them be dicks about it. Flight right up to the general's palace. I drop it at his feet. I'm this like, was again something that I thought of on the day after we shot or while we were shooting the first half. And it's one of those things without which the first half doesn't even work. Uh, the payoff of him being all prideful about his successful story is um, is one of the funniest things in the party. Neither was Omaha Beach, Blondie. Stop trying to scare us. I like the idea, the texture of the idea that Thor has something that could actually get Captain America drunk. Um, because, uh, he, as he explained in the first movie. Um, I don't know who that actor was, by the way. He's really good. He's very familiar, uh, the veteran. Uh, but, you know, we were lucky to get him. I just, I, the name isn't coming to me. Um, no, it was, it was so much fun to, to be able to do that and to use Excelsior as, as I'm so wasted. <laughs> Um, since I grew up with that phrase. Fact is, he's not like anybody I've ever known. One of the other great things about a movie like this and the opportunities they gave me with the actors, the locations, the scenarios, and the moods, and everything else was that you feel like you're making 13 different movies. And I'm very much, uh, apart from actually having ADHD, which I do, I'm very much a fan of things that change it up. And this was one of the instances, because they are both so beautiful and charming, where we all sort of went, when can we just make this movie? I actually said to them, um, to Mark and Scarlett, you guys, we, you guys should do The Thin Man. And they both asked me what The Thin Man was, which makes me feel that uh, the earth is doomed. Um, but, uh, but their energy there is so great, and to be able to lean into it visually just go ahead and say, let's pretend we're in the 40s, um, is, you know, a delight. And leads to um, the after party that's coming up, uh, which is a, a more well-known um, bit. And it's interesting because this stuff, particularly, you know, with them is very sort of studied, again, because I was going into a, a slightly older visual template um the camera work is a uh, somewhat less frenetic then we got into shooting this next scene and um it was also very elegant and camera moves it went from here to there and it was bombing and nobody was enjoying it the actors didn't feel funny their lines didn't sound funny <laughs> just didn't work and to the point where they're all standing there and i've got all of them uh, you know, for one of the few times, more times in this movie than the first one. But, you know, I've got every major actor I've ever admired standing in front of me, and I'm just drawing a blank, and I finally turned to uh, Jamie Christopher, our awesome AD, and said, 
can you help me? Can you make it stop? And he just turned around and said, thank you, everybody. That's a good day. See you all at 8 o'clock. And, um, uh, and then I just kept working and eventually figured out, oh, I'm shooting this in a very, like, it's the age of innocence and it's, you know, it's a party. And the whole point of this movie is you're at the party. You're invited. And um, I realized I had literally, with much ado, just shot an entire movie where people sit around and drink and talk. And um, the fact that I couldn't figure out how to shoot the after party scene in a movie whose code name, when we were shooting it, was After Party, um, very deliberately, uh, was the source of some embarrassment. But when we came back in, the cameras got looser, the lines got looser, um, the cast got happier, and it just started to flow. And they're all so good. And that montage was one of the first things I pitched. It wasn't until um, much later that I casually, thinking it would not be well received, pitched the payoff that will come later with the vision. Um, I, uh, I said, you know, you could do this, and it was Kevin who, you know, instantly knew how important it would be, and it is, in fact, the biggest cheer moment in the film. I like robot stories because they're Frankenstein stories. And as you can see, I leaned pretty heavily into that. Um, this guy I always think of as resembling the very first movie of Frankenstein, which I've only ever seen a still from. But it's this weird, screaming, almost mummy-like guy with tons of things, uh, tattered uh, cloth sort of dripping off his arms. And, and uh, um, as much as puppet and as much as scary robot um, wanted to evoke that uh, the very first uh, Frankenstein film um, Frankenstein robots it all has to do with um, the central human question of why am I here what is this please because um, we all have to ask that and we all have to feel the pain of being brought into a world that was not made to accommodate us, and um, uh, a, um, the Frankenstein story and, and most robot movies where the robot is anything other than a killing machine deal with that pain, and um, uh, very baldly, it's one of the things, like superheroes, uh, by the way, that was Mark on the day, that was not me, um, that was Mark's call, uh, he's a shameless physical comedian. Um, uh, if you look at the DVD extras, you'll see even more of that stuff. God bless him. But um, uh, that idea of why am I here, the way it gets simplified in the robot story is really fascinating to me because, um, you know, we, we come back to it because we can really ask what it is to be human when we take away every part of being human but one. Um, you know, when we, or we take away just one particular aspect. And... Um, uh, in this, you know, humanity, you know, our foibles and what we are as people, as parents, as powerful, as alliterative, um, you know, we, uh, all of those questions have to be asked in, in stories like this. The Avengers have so much power 
at the beginning of this. And one of the things that I knew, and I had this problem in the first one, is, you know, uh, nobody roots for the overdog. And, uh, and so it was very important to me that they be brought down a peg, but not just by circumstance, um, but because they have, in Tony's case, dramatically, but in every case to an extent, uh, lost some aspect of the mission. Um, lost some aspect of their humanity because that's the thing about being a superhero. Um, it's the thing about having power. Um, when your decisions affect more than the people around you, inevitably, you are going to destroy something. You're going to harm someone in a way that, that removes you from humanity. The more power you have, inevitably, uh, the less a part of the human community you are. And so, you know, Ultron himself says that, although he doesn't always realize how much it applies to him. And once again, the Frankenstein, and also the Pinocchio, which was, by the way, um, an idea I had for the Comic-Con teaser um, that uh, played so nicely it got used a whole bunch, and then I ended up saying, let's just go ahead and, and stick it in the film because it, uh, it is creepy. Um, she's picking glass out of her feet there, by the way. Um, in the longer version of the fight we had just seen, uh, Maria um, slid down and jumped in after Rhodey and, uh, and in her bare feet. Um, and the jacket she's wearing, by the way, uh, is Steve Rogers' uh, bomber jacket, uh, which I have yet to hear anybody comment on, um, but I thought it was an interesting little detail. I wanted to, obviously, make them more casual, and, and uh, we had to sort of demom her makeup a little bit when, when she arrived on set and kind of make sure she uh, felt as, as cool as everyone else. I have more than enough words to describe you, Stark. Thor, the Legionnaire. This was the scene, uh, as I mentioned, where I, um, I, had, I really struggled. Uh, I struggled because with no central sort of object uh, to build around, because um, it's an empty space where we were going to put a Jarvis later, um, and with no intense sort of source of light, um, uh, I really wasn't sure where to put people and how to get them where they needed to go emotionally, especially because Robert has a really difficult job in this scene of cracking up in the middle of... of the worst thing he's ever done. And um, to me, it was really important. And Robert, too, uh, the moment I pitched it to him, he latched onto it. He's like, I, I do that. I, whenever I'm busted, I can't help it. It's so bad. I, 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 I get nervous. I giggle. But I also think there's something... I feel like Tony's... You know, there's a little bit of the, the Asperger's uh, being on the spectrum with him, um, where he's just... Um, he's not quite... He's just not good at people <laughs> and um uh, and for me uh, again that was something to lean into and ultimately my whole tony is the villain thesis uh is nice nicely plays into it as well and again villain doesn't necessarily mean moha evil because here you see his his pain and his the sort of epic nature of his heroism which is contrasted, as usual, with the very simple nature of 
Steve's. Um, and, uh, you know, Tony is a guy who likes to do the math. And Steve is a guy who understands the situation he's in and is looking out for the people around him. In the DVD extras, you'll also be able to see uh, a scene between the two of them that comes before this. Ultimately, it was uh, an attempt to show them in the community um, and how they were a bit rebellious, but also very much community-minded. It, uh, um, it became apparent that the two of them walking into a dark room looking for something and then talking to someone who had clearly called them there gave us the information that we needed and also kept them a little more mysterious. The scene was so mundane and they were so just such you know, normal bickering uh, siblings that it didn't um, didn't really add to their grandeur. This is the first time we see Ultron and I I look back and I I'm you know we the fact of him sitting in that chair is very sort of based on the, the great sort of John Buscema um, kind of uh, you know the, the tortured king and the weight of the throne uh, kind of thing um, but uh, but then he stands up and that's how he's revealed and I thought that's less cinematic than it could have been after the fact this little bit that he says here is is also really important in the theme simply because um, one of the first things I ever wrote when sort of just freestyling about Ultron um, in my head was that children all kill their parents because once you have them, you no longer care as much about yourself. You accept your place in the cycle of the world and you know that you will die, but there's something more important to you than that. Um, and, uh, uh, and then, in parenthesis, I wrote, because uh, I was sending this out as a memo, don't worry, nothing like that will ever appear in the film. And then it actually did. Um, but I do think that uh, a connection that even I didn't make is because so much of this is about power, um, yet also so much of it is about family and uh, the responsibility we have as, not just as, as leaders or as heroes, but as parents. Um, there is no time when anybody in the world understands what the truly powerful um, can do and go through unless they're parents until the moment their parents and then suddenly they have complete mastery over somebody's mind and um not forever <laughs> um in the case of my kids not even for that long but um but there is a, there is the ability to uh to uplift or destroy it's um it is you know a perfect connection between what is going on in this movie uh, politically and thematically and what is going on um, personally. This shot here is one of my favorite shots in the film. Uh, just the way Ultron listens. Again, ILM. They had James Spader's performance to work off of. Uh, they had face capture on him, so he wore cameras on his face the whole time. But they, they really took it and... Um, and used it and managed to make a man who's made out of metal um, not just to sound um, but move like Spader and, uh, and 
give the performance. When James took the gig, he said, I don't want to do voiceover work. Um, I want to be able to, to, you know, give a performance. And, um, uh, and my God, he did. And they did such an extraordinary job of, of um, capturing it. So, so much so that when he is standing there doing nothing, cannot stop looking at it. I developed a huge, not even a man crush, like a, like a teenage girl crush on Ultron. Like I, I, I want a picture of him over my bed and I want to write about him in my diary and I wonder if he's thinking about me. He's just gorgeous. Of course, there's a lot of gorgeous to go around. This bit, there was a lot more of. We played the mystery of what's up with Barton um, a lot. Is he, is he still possessed? Is he villainous? Is he something terrible? Um, ultimately, we just kept the fact that he says, I don't have a girlfriend, and then later says, girlfriend. My issue with it was simply, I mean, people felt, you know, can we get some time out of here? My issue was I've just felt that people would only think that he was talking to Fury. Since he had been a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, we never seen Fury, and, and we know that S.H.I.E.L.D. is gone, um, that uh, they wouldn't think that he was up to something dire. They would just think, oh, he's listening to his old boss. And the dancing I would have to have gone through to uh, make that uh, clear that he wasn't just didn't seem worth the effort. So we kept just a little bit of it. I miss it. I miss the idea of like, what's his dark secret? What's his dark secret? Because I think it's important. Um, his dark secret is obviously the crux of the film. And I mean, like the fulcrum, like the thing upon which the entire film revolves, um, changes. And uh, so that's... Um, but I still think it works even without all the build-up. I don't follow what comes out of Wakanda. The strongest metal on Earth. Where is this guy now? This is another one of those shots that I don't get to take the credit for. Um, uh, we had so many extraordinary cameramen and our pilot was amazing. And if you went out to Bangladesh, uh, where these shipyards exist. Um, we had originally been going to Wakanda, but since we weren't using anybody from Black Panther, uh, it became, we kept going less and less to Wakanda till I referred to it as Wakanda. Um, like we're just sort of on the outskirts and it became a tease and not worth it. So, but we wanted, you know, the vibranium dealer and the arms dealer and all that. And um, so Clow was the, the suggestion. It was actually going through, when we thought of it, Jeremy uh, went through and uh, looked at, you know, images of Clow online and some fan had put him up, uh, um, put up Andy Circus. What if Andy Circus played Clow? And obviously we were already working with Andy. He and his Imaginarium uh, were guiding both Mark and James in their movement. And um, since he is the master of mocap, um, but uh, we realized that we wanted him for something else. And when he showed up looking exactly like that on the day, I, I, was, I thought it was mocap. I could not believe how different he had become. Um, and he's just he's the sweetest guy, but also an extraordinary player. Like He's not on screen for that long, but you do not forget him. Intimidating someone. I'm afraid. Uh, not that afraid. Everybody is afraid of something. Cuttlefish. 
deep sea. Some of these things in the film are very autobiographical. I saw a documentary on cuttlefish, and I still cannot deal with it. I don't think it's okay that the Lord made cuttlefish, and I wish that he hadn't. They freak me out. You, so you should check them out. With my brain. They're unbelievable. And make me see a giant cuttlefish. At some point, I will also have to talk about the twins. Um, and basically, it'll just be another praise fest. Uh, a lot of people didn't want uh, necessarily to have the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver in the film. They felt with Ultron and, and the vision, it was going to be overstuffed. But it was very important for me to have someone for Ultron to talk to and also someone else whose powers would be different. Um, by the way, this uh, lab here um, was all created uh, digitally uh, after the fact. Uh, originally, it was just in the barrels. Um, one of the things I discovered in post was that I had shot the least science fiction-y looking science fiction movie ever, which was fine, but um, uh, it was what I had intended. But um, when the vibranium just looked like gold bars, there was even a bit where they were in a mining car, uh, all stacked up, being carted from one place to another, and we were all like, um, this is a little Indiana Jones, this is a little old-timey, you know? Like, we expected Walter Brennan to show up, so um, we replaced it after the fact and made a little more. In the idiom of the science fiction movie, this was supposed to be. This contains... Um, my favorite Spader moment. Um, his edition of the word ooh. I'm sorry. I'm so, I'm sure that's going to be okay. I'm sorry. It's just, I don't understand. Just, I, could, I can't say enough about that moment. I was sitting next to Paula, the script supervisor, um, Paula Kazarina, who's the best in the biz, and she and I, I looked at her, I was like, did he just say ooh? Is he? Do you think he'll do that again? Do you think he'll do it again? Because James uh, learns everything, uh, you know, word for word. Uh, that's his M.O., like like it's a play. And um, I was like, oh, he's got to do the ooh. He's got to do the ooh. And then um, he did it when we rolled, and I went up to him. And uh, the first thing he said was, I added an ooh. I hope that's okay. I can do it again without if you like. Um, I'm like, no, I, I love you. I don't think I said that, but you could see it in my eyes. Um... You know, the, the idea that Ultron is emotionally so capricious. It's just something I hadn't really seen in an AI movie, particularly one where the robots are going to decide that all humanity must be killed. For him to be the most human, the most, you know, um, temperamental uh, was, was very important. And it's why Spader is the only guy, because he can do that sort of classic... Keith David, like, you want me to do voiceover because I, you know, I make the subwoofer explode, you know, with the gravitas of my basso profundo. But then he can become completely goofy. Um, we shot, uh, we shot it two ways with Andy, uh, whether or not the arm came off. Um, Kevin will tell you straight up, he likes, he likes, an, he likes a good arm coming off. It's like, if I can cut off somebody's hand, um, then I'm, I'm just fine. He may be, he might, you know, his Empire Strikes Back uh, obsession might be even bigger than mine. That was one of those sort of signature moments uh, and one of the reasons why I wanted Quicksilver in the film. Uh, 
to be able to just see things differently than we ever had before. I didn't feel like, with the exception of the one we do, um, uh, where we go into hyper slow-mo at the beginning, I, I, I don't feel comfortable uh, making a, a sort of hyperbolic, surreal meal out of, out of those moments, um, and uh, unless I have a, a reason. I'm kind of very pedantic when it comes to filmmaking. And um, so to have uh, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver justifying um, sort of the, uh, the strange way I wanted to shoot these guys and the new ways I wanted to look at them was uh, enormously useful. Obviously, they're very important as characters, and I can't say enough about the players, but, um, uh, but that was one of the, the main reasons I brought them in. Now, I just explained all this stuff about how I don't like uh, things to be all weird for no reason whatsoever, and I'm about to make myself a big old liar. This is going very well. The dreams. The dreams were the other reason why I wanted the kids in the movie, because it was going to be a chance to do something that was very out of the Marvel idiom um, and something very surreal, uh, but surreal but emotionally grounded. That is to say that, you know, there's a reason for everything we do, but we played... we referred to these as dreams and and right here for example they're actually all walking backwards which we ran we had people move backwards or ran things backwards a few times not so that you would notice just so that they would have just enough awkwardness only the breakable ones you're made of marble we'll celebrate after the graduation ceremony lisa lasik cut these um and you know we've worked together for a long, long time, and, um, you know, uh, she was able to create, and, and Jeff added some notes as well, but just moments that were uh, uh, even more surreal than, than what I'd shot. But everything is very deliberate in its bizarreness. Cap is the guy who can't stop seeing war, even at a party for the end of the war. Um, who, when asked to imagine, um, you know, a life of normalcy, comes up with nothing, which, by the way, was uh, Drew Goddard's idea. I was asking him about Cap and fretting over the dreams, and uh, we call them dreams, by the way, simply because we can't call them visions because it was too confusing with uh, um, having a character called the vision. But um, this moment where he turns around, yeah. Uh, Drew pitched it, and um, uh, it ended up being the central moment. I don't know when I'm going to get to the part where I start talking about Ben Davis, the DP, uh, because I'm not sure I can ever stop. The work in this movie is the most beautiful that's ever had my name on it. By the way, those three guys uh, in animal masks standing in the arches there, um, they represent something I have never done before which is a, an absolute uh, balls-out Easter egg, which I will discuss uh, later on. And not just a, a Marvel Easter egg, an actual having to do with my work. The ceremony is 
Yeah, this whole cutting pattern here was created by Lisa. These dreams were obviously much longer, but we got what we needed from them, which was to know, you know, what sort of drove everyone and, uh, and what, you know, to reopen old wounds and to make them, you know, uh, as vulnerable as possible, obviously. She remembers that she was trained and, and um, even abused into being an assassin. And um, that, you know, she has a history of, of killing and of, and of a very dark career. Cap is incapable of being a part of the community he's constantly talking about. Um, and Thor feels, you know, that his powers has... Um, has, will destroy everything, that he's, you know, that he's not on the right path, that he's out of control. I'm not exactly sure what Banner's dreaming right now. Um, uh, he's, uh, we looked at some, uh, point of view shots, but nothing we created, uh, you know, really sort of did as much as just showing how bonkers the Hulk uh, was being because ultimately um, uh, it doesn't matter what I said to the animators and to Mark was he feels like the world is attacking him like you know it's like he's he's in the middle of a wasp's nest all the time one of the most difficult things about animating the Hulk is, is trying to figure out what he's pissed about now. Because when he's there for a long time, he has to keep this very specific energy. Um, that shot in particular, um, the doggy cam or dinner tray, um, where you sort of attach the camera to someone. Uh, I uh, first saw it in Mean Streets uh, when Harvey K. Hill's super drunk um, and uh, fought very hard to, to keep that. And, and uh, they had to create it stitched from bits of what we had from the day, but um, it really does give you a good sense that um, the Hulk's not in his right mind, even for the Hulk. And the question of what's making him angry became um, easier and harder to answer because um, the answer is everything. Um, so we knew we, he, we had all the energy we, we needed, but you still have to figure out where he's looking, what he's, what he thinks is the problem is, you know, and, and um, uh, there's here, for example, he's just, he's flailing. Um, but then when he turns around, um, you can see he actually does get shot in the face. This shot, which is among my favorites, is also among the most difficult um, because uh, the Hulkbuster armor is, you know, it's known from the comics. It's actually from after my time because I'm super old. But um, even I knew uh, you absolutely have to have Hulkbuster because uh, nobody is capable of fighting the Hulk. Um, uh, and except Tony and the idea that Banner himself had had a hand in devising this, um, uh, you know, made perfect emotional sense and also made for what would be an exciting uh, sequence. The reason that um, that shot that I mentioned was difficult and not just delightful is uh, that Iron Man is inside the torso of this thing. And that's a very difficult thing to convey, to convey the size. Um, you know, I, I, I look back and wonder if I, you know, I should have had him, you know, appear behind the Hulk. I wanted to do the, the Western standoff, but um, 
but I need, you know, it's very difficult even with people around him to realize this guy's 15 feet tall. He's not quite twice the size of the Hulk, but he's, he's up there. And um, when they're all completely isolated for most of the fight, it's very difficult to really get the sense of that. Um, we're coming to uh, something that never fails to get a laugh which for a long time was a real problem for me because I didn't mean it as a joke. I, I thought it would be, you know, cool and, and obviously comic booky and but uh, um, but I didn't think of it as a laugh moment. And by God, it is. And I look at it now and I'm like, well, it is, you know, it has a Warner Brothers cartoon element to it. Um, but I, I love it when I actually don't get the emotional gauge of what I'm doing because I feel like if I'm getting more than I expected from something or even something completely unexpected, it, it makes it more than just um, efficient storytelling. It makes it uh, something that's alive. Uh, there was elevator gag. Um, Federico, one of the uh, storyboard guys, had worked that out, and, uh, and then we changed the space we were in, but we couldn't, couldn't not have the elevator gag because um, it felt so good. Now, the Hulk is pretty much invulnerable, so having him spit out a tooth was a big deal, and, and getting the emotional register of that thing was a big deal, too, because the instinct was for everyone, for him to be twitchy and monstrous and all the things that, you know, he had been in the scene, and this was one of those things where, no, you need to take license. Uh, when he turns around, he needs to be very quietly, like the kind of calm before the storm pissed. Um, I was like, more Robert Mitchum, more Robert Mitchum. That's what I kept saying, and people were like, we have no idea what you mean by that. But, um, you know, that kind of cool. Which may be a bit of a cheat. Now this was quite a showpiece. Um, delicate, I know delicate's a weird word to use right now. Delicate for us, um, because, you know, even now, many years later, um, the last thing we want to do is egregiously evoke the specter of 9-11. Of and, um, uh, you know, being uh, uh, callous about that is unthinkable. But um, at the same time, it was very important to me that, uh, you know, because it's part of what this movie is about, that there be a price, that there be real damage that we say, oh, you don't just bust up a whole city and nobody suffers for it. Um, this, you know, it, it uh, informs, you know, the end of the movie and, and what the mission is and, and what the stakes are. Um, we originally shot it that he changed back to Banner and uh, uh, was looking around at seeing what he'd done, but uh, thought, late in the game that it would be more effective if the Hulk himself uh, was able to register it and that it became stronger than whatever spell uh, Tony had knocked out of him. The only rule of science I have in Avengers movies is if somebody's mind controlling you, then you get hit really hard, you'll pro then it'll probably end. That's, that's, uh, that's actually all the science that I know in the whole world. Stay in stealth mode and stay away from here. So, run and hide. Until we can find Ultron, I don't have a lot else to offer. 
Neither do we. Hey, you want to switch out? No, I'm good. This contains the last vestige of the, um, what, what the hell is Barton up to? Safe house. He originally had a line, where are you taking us? Place I hoped I'd never take you in. But on the day, I all I could think was Tony would be like, uh, I'm definitely going to driving. I don't know what that means, but it sounds ominous. Um, and it either sounded ominous or heroical. Um, uh, so him being all shifty and saying safe house was just more efficient. This house, these grounds, we're, we're on the Duke of Wellington's land um, in England, trying to make it uh, like Springsfield and The Simpsons, every state in America. <laughs> um, so that they're just like in America. We live in America, USA. I have more to say about the house and, and grounds. But first, let's talk about the secret weapon. This is an agent of some kind. Gentlemen, this is Laura. And she was a secret weapon because we had to keep Linda out of all of the um, promo stuff because the one secret I was most anxious to protect was um, that Hawkeye's dark secret is that he has a family. Chris there, by the way, um, just killing it. He did like four hilarious reactions, um, which was great because in our heads when the Avengers walked in here, it would be the strangest thing in the world. But with only two of them in costume, two or three, it, uh, they, and the house being so big and beautiful, it, uh, they didn't look that out of place. And so for Evans to keep uh, doing very broad bits of like, what's going on here, was just a lifesaver. There are two of these girls, um, and if you color them pink, uh, they play John C. Riley's daughter in Guardians of the Galaxy, which is not something I knew when I shot this. Um, but I'm sure there's um, they, they can do an entire four-issue limited series as to how this girl's related to somebody um, on another planet. This next shot, uh, some of you may recognize from The Searchers. I uh, realized I needed that moment from Cap, and it's very central to his whole theme about not being able to be at home, live a normal life. I did mention it to uh, Jeremy Latcham, um, and who then wrote a memo to everyone, um, because I said, I need a little bit of the interior of the house in this area. Um, and he's like, Joss wants to do a shot from The Searchers. I was like, don't say it! Um, but as long as I don't say anything on the DVD commentary, I think I should be fine, and no one will know that I'm just a thief. A thief! You are so cute. This is a scene that was in danger of being trimmed uh, for the entire editing process um, and ended up uh, with maybe one line pulled out. Uh, it's so crucial to see that... Um, uh, what a normal life is and what a normal perspective is on the Avengers and their life. And again, Linda is just so earthy and so real and you buy the two of these, these guys together so much. Um, she not only represents, uh, you know, home and hearth and how he's cool, um, you know, she, she's so 
luminous that she uh, um, she's what the Avengers could never have. And also her face showed up in the picture on the left, which uh, was a fortuitous thing that we then highlighted even further because uh, it looked so beautiful in that wide shot right there. Things are changing for us. She also just was dialed into the character from moment one. And, uh, you know, she and Jeremy met a couple days before we shot. And, and yet the level of, of intimacy is, is enormous. And it's just his respect for her and, and for what this life means is, uh, is so crucial. This is actually in Seoul, Korea. One of the great things about doing this one uh, and shooting from London meant we could go everywhere. And the first one we had to create places in this one, um, we could really go to them. And you find, you know, architecture like that, uh, which you would not find even perhaps in your own imagination. So it's, um, it's very exciting. Is the next me. Most of the stuff in these labs was uh, was rewritten many times after the fact, and uh, um, Claudia came in to reshoot a, a bunch of it as it sort of got moved around. There was so much exposition that she and, and James had to give us, um, yet keep it dynamic, uh, which they did a good job with. That shot of the house and barn is, is probably my last opportunity to explain that those places don't exist. They were built for the movie, and we shot them for one day. Um, we shot one day outside there, and then um, and then they were gone. Uh, they built the interior of the house. The barn is an actual barn in England, and um, uh, there the design is not completely dissimilar to the farm. Uh, that I spent a lot of my childhood on in upstate New York. Um, and uh, it's a very comforting space. I would, if that were real, I would, I would want to live there. But actually what really exists on that field usually is not a house, but very angry cows. Angry, angry, bitter cows. I don't know what it is. They're just, they weren't, they weren't pleasant. But I was an Avenger. That I was anything more than the this scene. They made me. You only get the first two thirds of the scene um, in the movie. Uh, we cut out the end. Uh, um, people thought it would be, and I, I agree in part. I do that it would be better to leave the question of whether they are together um, without answering it. But if you watch the scene in the um, uh, DVD extras, you see the whole scene. And you see just more of why I'm in love with these two people. <laughs> and I'm in love with their love and I'm in love with their pain. And they were so good on this day. And, and you know, Mark and, and Scarlett only ever bring um, goofy, happy energy to the set. But then, you know, you start the cameras and they go to a place of pain that is um, just so human. And so excruciating, and and this uh, this scene caused uh, my first ever completely unironic group hug, um, because I was so proud of them and what they did. Um, 
I insisted we have an extra day of shooting for this scene. Uh, we didn't need it. Um, they just came out and nailed it. This moment from her. They sterilize you. Boom. That just kills me. That throwaway, like, it's no big deal. The more my eyes welling up gesture is, uh, is just beautiful. And, um, I love the very haunting, weird little, um, plaintive, uh, melody that, uh, Danny Elfman put over this. Um, their romance, uh, was, um, a point of contention for some people, uh, not for us while we were making it. In fact, it never occurred to us, uh, that there would be any reaction against it. Um, they seemed so much like they, uh, belonged, um, if not together, um, in the same sort of world that, uh, and the chemistry they had from the first scene they ever played together. Um, just felt right. And people who thought she was supposed to be with Clint, well, obviously, I, the, you know, it's very important that he's married, that he's normcore, that he, uh, his uh, distance from the Avengers is caused by the fact that he actually has a connection to the world and he knows they don't. But also, I think it's much more interesting for he and Natasha to be two people who would lay down their lives for each other um, but aren't, inter aren't interested in sleeping with each other. Um, I think that's a more interesting dynamic, a true one, and, uh, and, and better than just the two of them hooking up. The, uh, the log rip. Um, we built a lot of logs for him to rip. Uh, it's a constant conversation with Chris about Cap's power level. It's, it's because it, uh... With Captain America, and particularly with the Hulk, um, you get this thing of, uh, okay, Sergio Leone, sorry, there I said it. Um, uh, you get this thing of, um, uh, oh, at one, one moment I'm having a normal fist fight with some guy, and the next moment I can jump two stories, and so which is it? Um, I'm embarrassed to say that Hello, Dear uh, was Roberts, and I, that's one of those moments where I just kick myself. I'm like, how did I miss that? Was she ever not working for you? Artificial intelligence. You never even hesitated. Look, it's been a really long day, like Eugene O'Neill long, so how's about we skip to the part where you're useful? There was a certain yeah, level of uncertainty about whether the Eugene O'Neill line would play, and it's... Not the director of anybody. Might, after the hammer moment, might be the, the biggest crowd pleaser uh, with every audience we played it for. I, I'm not sure why, honestly, but I'm, I'm very pleased. I saw it. I didn't tell the team. How could I? It's all dead, Nick. Felt it. The whole world, too. Because of me. The idea of playing Tony's confessional, that, uh, because there's a long period where it was like, well, does he tell everyone he had a vision? Um, and uh, we had lines in it for quite a while that indicated he had said something or said something off screen, but um, you don't bring Nick Fury in without a reason. And although it was important to say they're flying on their own, um, uh, you knew we wanted to see Nick and, and to have him be the first person that Tony can actually talk to and for that to become the sort of, in a way, the sea change for Tony, even though he's about to do something even more absurd than what he's already done. Uh, 
is um, is important for the whole group. I like the look. This is actual Royal Holloway University of London. Again, anytime we could um, go to the place, let it be the place that we said it was, um, and. Uh, that wasn't all the time, but uh, was uh, as much as possible. Obviously, that scene was a little bit longer, all of Stellan stuff. There was more of, again, enjoy your DVD extras. Uh, the Thor and Stellan go to a cave together subplot is, is one of the more complicated uh, issues in, in the movie. Uh, people either think there's too much of it or not enough, but uh, what we have gets us where we need to go. I contacted our friends at the Nexus about that. Nexus? Uh, this scene, difficult. Um, not unlike the scene in the lab, uh, even though we had the table. Um, just difficult to get the energy. It's a very bucolic kind of setting. It's very deliberately uh, the opposite of the helicarrier. I mean, he mentions the helicarrier, um, Fury does, on purpose because it's important for him, A, because later on he's going to show up with it, and if you have forgotten it exists, you don't want that moment of like, what? But also because this portion of the movie last time, where everybody's sort of searching their soul and wondering what the heck to do and conflicting, came on the helicarrier last time, and it was a very kind of science fiction, kind of comic booky space, and the whole point of coming to the Barton's farm was to do the opposite of that, to bring them literally back down to earth. But having done that, um, you then have to allow for this moment of respite from the giant action set pieces, two more of which are coming up, and, uh, and at the same time keep some kind of energy and, mo and momentum. For some reason, uh, every time we did a shot on Mark, when he got to the line, has anybody seen Helen Cho? He called her Anita. And, um, <laughs> I mean, we came back the next day and did more coverage. And as soon as we were off him, he was fine. And then when, as soon as we came back on him, it was Anita. No, I have no idea why. Nobody knows why. But... Oh my God, it made us laugh so hard. Poor man. Um, it's so random, uh, Anita Cho. But um, uh, but when he did nail it, he did nail it. It's, you look at that shot where he says, has anyone been in contact with Helen Cho? He's, his camera's moving here, he's looking there. It's very precise. Um, and that's um, an interesting thing with Mark because I think he's, I think he's probably the best actor of his generation. Um, but he, the, but that precision is not natural to him. I have to sort of go, I need you to do this thing. And um, because what makes him so great is he's so honest that his stuff, it doesn't come from, and we land here, which is a very sort of comic book vernacular and very much the way I've always created. Um, you know, that sort of everything is precise and musical and it goes boom and then it goes to the next thing. Um, he's not that. Um, and because he, because he just, everything he says sounds like, you know, it just came from him. He doesn't, um, play characters. He just becomes them. He just exists. Um, so it was interesting to work that out. 
we pulled out some of the rail for this shot because I was like, I'm getting, I'm going, going with the wind, guys. I'm going full out. I'm going, you know, full Western, full melodrama, all of that stuff. And that scene between the two of them was obviously part of my ongoing campaign to ensure the belief that Hawkeye is a dead man. Um, even to the point where he says, you know, that that's his last project at the house, meaning this is really, meaning this is my last mission. I mean, he might as well say, don't worry, honey, it's just one more job, it's perfectly safe. Um, you know, and then walk under a ladder. Um, uh, he's like dead meat in um, Hot Shots. And it's all, it's all a ruse. How do you find it? Pretty simple. You bring a magnet. This is not actually in Oslo. Okay, that part is a total lie. And the idea, though, that uh, Tony is searching his world um, and uh, in the world of science and Thor is searching the world of magic, uh, obviously there was a much longer scene with Thor, but there was also at one point a version where we just intercut the two enormously, the cyber uh, search and the, and the dream search. Uh, in the end, we went with the least amount of stuff to explain what Thor, what knowledge Thor needs to come back with. Chris is, uh, Chris is great and very patient with me because um, he's, you know, trying hard not to be irrelevant. And it's tough with Thor because he doesn't speak the way people do. He doesn't live the way people do. He can't just sort of be the casual guy, although Chris is hilarious at the throwaway jokes. Um, and uh, I kept saying to Chris, I'm going to figure this out. Um, you know, I'm going to give you something really exciting. And uh, um, whether or not I succeeded is, uh, is open to some debate. Um, but God knows um, everything I've thrown at him, he's done so well that uh, it makes you want to, um, to protect the character because he's the only one who's, well, he ain't from around here. You said we would destroy the Avengers, make a better world. It will be better. That fist curling up in frame on the left there, that's a, another example of something that could never have been done before in, uh, with what we could do in the first film. Um, just these, these casual frames. They're a little static. Um, some of Ultron's stuff was devised later, was sort of honed later. And um, this we actually shot on the day. Um, and uh, the space was a, a little small and a little, um, didn't afford a lot of opportunities, but I realized that I was so into the things they were saying that I, I'd sort of, I felt like I dropped the ball a little bit visually. And, and that's the case with Ultron. Um, in some cases, because we were building it after the fact and we had a plate of the background that we were then animating him in front of, so actual sort of camera movement was more difficult to uh, to put in late in the game. Um, and sometimes I think I just, uh, I missed some opportunities. I look at all the opportunities I've missed. I look at this movie as a series of compromises and failures. Just so you know, I'm not actually going to emphasize that. Um, and it, I'm talking to my shrink about it, but um, uh, but it's uh, the things about it that I love, I love very much. Um, but I, uh, I always think, oh, I could have done better there. He's uploading himself into the body. Where? 
This is uh, Claudia, um, who uh, is so impressive doing the hardest thing in the movie, um, uh, emotional exposition, where we give her a ton of dialogue to say, then we add to it later, um, and uh, she's still emotional and cool. No manifest. That could be him. There, it's a truck from the lab. Right above you, Cap, on the loop by the bridge. Coming to Seoul was uh, a real opportunity for us. Not a lot of people had shot there. And um, uh, we had to sit down with uh, their ministers of culture and, and, you know, explain what it was we were, were trying to do and, and uh, you know, make sure that, you know, we were going to show Seoul in, in, a, in a good light. And in fact, we... Um, why we liked the city was because, you know, we knew we were going to have a chase throughout the whole city, and, and um, uh, not the whole city, it's one of the most enormous cities in the world, um, but through some, some lovely bits of it. And, uh, um, and we wanted a place that was very modern and very exciting and uh, not gritty in the same sense. Uh, we wanted every place to register as itself, Johannesburg, um, Seoul, and... Uh, and then we wanted to fly under buildings when clearly he could have flown over them just because they were there and they were pretty. Um, I've talked about ILM and uh, the extraordinary work they did, which I can't say enough about. But as is the case with movies like this, there's hundreds of houses uh, doing various effects in various uh, bits. This whole sequence... Um, the Ultron portion of it. Uh, um, most of the major work in it was uh, done by Dean Egg. And um, uh, the houses are really good about helping each other out. Some of these shots are shared by like four different houses. Somebody's doing a background, somebody's doing stunt face replacement, somebody's doing, you know, a digital creature. And, and with the vision, somebody, one house did body, one did face, one did cape, one did background. It was just a... Uh, uh, but they're all, you know, they're very cooperative, they're very inventive, and everybody brings that extra quality. A lot of these low-angle uh, shots you see of Cap going over camera, um, uh, her going through alleys, and, uh, were shot with a, remote, a little remote-control car, which, honestly, is my favorite thing. <laughs> I, I like the remote control car way more than, than the motorcycle <laughs> because it's just so cool. This moment here, um, Brian Andrews, uh, storyboard artist uh, who's done a lot of great stuff for us, um, came in after the fact uh, and looked at this and we had all, knocked all the cars over. It was Brian's idea to add Captain America <laughs> to the, what we refer to as the car ballet. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it took something that was pretty but kind of pointlessly destructive and turned it into a, a moment of peril for one of our guys and, and uh, made it, uh, you know, not just more exciting but, you know, worthy. Um, and that kind of, you know, feedback and, and having those new eyes um, is, uh, is so crucial and so exciting because it just keeps getting better. Um, the thing about a sequence like this is it's, it's 
always about the connection between the players. The more you can um, connect them, the more we would add dialogue between them. Um, it stopped, you know, it wasn't just um, stunt, stunt, stunt. You, you felt their humanity. There was an emotional thread going through here for Scarlett when we shot it that she had been rejected by Banner very brutally. Um, if you, if you um, see uh, the, the entire sequence on the DVD, it's, 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 it's a rough thing, and, and it made her have this kind of like um, self-destructive, just um, brave kind of fatalism. And, um, uh, and then some of this stuff was shot after that had been cut, but most of it, you know, beforehand and so you end up with someone who's playing something that uh, that is no longer in the film and, and uh, it's just a very delicate process to make sure that you don't have some inexplicable um, sort of uh, emotional malaise from her but luckily you know she's the kind of person who hides that sort of stuff and, and as a character she plays on the surface as very in control and um, uh, so we were able to cut it together without it seeming uh, like strange. But it also, you know, it means that uh, one of the emotional arcs of this sequence disappeared and then you end up relying on spectacle, which is the last thing that you want, even though the spectacle is beautifully put together. Um, uh, and you have the kids going from, you know, villain to hero. Uh, which is a, a major plot turn, and you have Ultron disappearing with Widow. Uh, so you, you're, you're servicing the story, but um, emotionally, um, you know, there's not as much going on as there would have been. Uh, and that's, uh, that's complicated because, um, you know, once you start a, a sequence this massive, uh, without that particular emotional hook, it's um, it's very easy for people to get pummeled. Um, but by bringing the kids in, by cutting it down, um, and uh, just by the beautiful job uh, Jeff did cutting it, um, you know, I think it sustains. But uh, but I'm always going to look at what's not. Almost all of that was in Korea or shot with plates from Korea. Um, this is actually in. Uh, England and Law Cross at the sort of a place we used for a few of the sets and exteriors near Shepperton where we shot most of it um, that they dressed up very specifically um, and uh, brought the trains I think we brought them from Korea the two train cars that we had um, to dress them in one of the things I love about having all these characters is the way their alliances can shift and change. And Captain America has never expressed anything but sympathy for these guys, even while he was fighting them. So for him to suddenly, you know, say one mean thing and then boom, they're allies, um, it's exciting. Um, but it also feels emotionally logical. And then it brings us back to the idea that Tony is the villain. And this is, you know, one of the true, like, villainous moments he has uh, is telling Hawkeye, why don't you disappear and I'm going to make an evil eyebrow face um, because I'm about to do something crazy. And the idea that he's going to lean into the very thing uh, that is wrong with him 
uh, uh, is is interesting to me because the idea that you know the worst thing about us is useful uh, is um, you know gives this thing texture. Look at the reflection of Jarvis in Bruce's glasses. That's uh, that's something that uh, that level of detail is. Um, uh, because of course Jarvis not there. That was added later, and that that level of care and detail um, is in every frame of this uh, of this movie. It's uh, you know our VFX had Chris Townsend was running you know ninety seven different houses and uh, um, and one of the things I love about Marvel is that nothing is good enough is never good enough and uh this is the um the the level of of texture and detail and character that they put into vfx uh, doubles this sort of amorphous character it's so complicated figuring out how do we make him feel like a program that's talking give him personality but not too much um make him not cartoony uh make him feel integrated into a universe that is at its base very grounded um, we're asking that question about every effect, every day, and um, you know the stuff they gave me is so human on every level, um, and ultimately these stories never work. This scene was created in post. Um, there was some amusement at uh, the literal translation of what had been in post vis. On the left, the I don't want to say phallic uh, uh, implement of, uh, but um, but if you look carefully at it, oh yeah. Um, and uh, we sort of laughed about it, but then I decided I wanted to keep it since as he becomes more aggressive, the idea that his iconography becomes more male when he's, you know, just a program that's very George O'Keefe in the lab, and then, and then now he's becoming pure aggression. Um, this is also uh, one of my favorite performances from James and ILM, um, the love and... and and poignancy of his dream deferred uh, and how uh, insane it makes him. Um, we had another version of the scene that was just too civilized, something I do a lot, where people are just holding a cup of tea instead of ripping their own faces and guts apart. Um, and Scarlet with no lines giving me beautiful stuff and the idea, obviously, of somebody doing the infamous and, in fact, some, somewhat cliched uh, Nietzsche quote, but then putting a genuine spin on it, um, a very literal one. Uh, uh, it was very exciting and fun. And uh, designing his sort of final armor to be different uh, uh, was, was super tough to find something that worked. Um, it covers his face and, and some of his the greatness of his delivery a little bit, and I think we all sort of regretted that a little bit, but it also brings him more towards the Ultron that um, uh, that we know from the comics and uh, gives us that distance um, that we need to get into the final act. Shut it down. Nope, not going to happen. You don't know what you're doing. And you do? She's not in your head. Once again, internal conflict is the thing that makes these things work. And never change your shade. And that's fairly badass of Banner. No, no. Go on. 
You were saying? As I said, the uh, this moment came from just walking the set and saying, well, they are talking a lot. He's very fast. Why wouldn't he just, oh, okay. And then, of course, the callback, which uh, I threw in late in the game, but which was very necessary because you would not remember that phrase from the beginning of the movie to the end, and as the end of the movie becomes quite important. Watch her, particularly uh, in this moment when she casts a spell through herself, boom, to him. Um, all of that movement uh, was very specifically choreographed. Uh, it's, it's probably the first thing I worked on. I worked with Jennifer White, um, a dancer and um, choreographer with, uh, with Lizzie and the three of us. Spent a lot of time with me translating what are very sort of literal moves um, uh, to, uh, to create the language of her magic so that people would understand it and not just think, oh, she can do anything she wants. They would, it would be like throwing a sort of magic punch. And besides, it meant choreography, and if you've seen the movie, you know I like a lot of that. That shot of uh, Scarlet Witch is one of my favorite in the film as well because she's been desperate to keep this from happening more than anyone because she's seen the apocalyptic vision that it contained, and yet um, when she sees the vision, what's on her face is clearly fear slash I am falling in love with you. And... Um, uh, as I grew up reading the comics where they actually fall in love and get married. Um, it's nice to throw to that a little bit without overplaying it. This was another moment that came from uh, just walking the set. And um, originally there was a big fight between him and Thor as he was still becoming a conscious guy. And then um, uh, we pulled that out, but it all led to the moment where he um, is at the window because I thought, First of all, look at this cool window. And I need a reason to shoot outside it, but more importantly, the stages of his self-awareness involve seeing the world, the outside world, outside of himself, and then seeing himself um, in reflection. Um, and those feel like two separate stages of sort of, you know, any human sort of understanding of existence. And he goes through that and uh, is, is complete. Then why would you bring stock is right? Oh, it's definitely the there's a lot of buys uh, in something like this. And to have a purple guy show up uh, in the beginning of the third act, uh, it's a big buy. And um, so be able to have these little moments uh, that help explain the story of his rather convenient consciousness. Um, it's uh, it's both necessary and, and an exciting piece of texture. I can't, I can barely talk about how cool Bettany is and what great work they did on his face, um, uh, both in makeup and then after the fact, because all the rendering of textures on his face made it very easy to uh, to give him what we referred to as digital Botox. Um, to take away the expressiveness and in his eyes, and so the little wrinkles uh, and things that you wouldn't expect to see on an android that you need for him to uh, to be what Bettany brought uh, is actually very difficult to render um, and very beautifully accomplished. Uh, this moment uh, when he asks, you know, "What will you do?" Uh, this was part of my sort of recalibration of the vision from Jarvis to the vision where he basically lays it out. He 
can't really stop me. <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, I wrote him before as, I would say, polite. And here, um, you know, he has his own thing, um, his own agenda that, that goes beyond humanity. Um, and uh, later on, you know, has what is for me the most important move, moment in the movie, uh, based on his sort of understanding of life beyond us and our agenda. And not what you are, and not what you intended. So there may be no way to make you trust me. And then, of course, there's go. this. You know, the great thing is we, uh, we set it up for the whole movie um, without anybody realizing we were setting right. something up. Well done. Chris improv that line in the moment, which I love. But um, it's also, it's not just um, a trick. It's an important piece of storytelling, not just because of who the vision is and what he's going to mean, but because, um, you know, we need to trust him. And uh, there is no better way to say categorically <laughs> we can than, um, than that. Now, you'll hear Tony talking about someone's going to die over a picture of Hawkeye looking at his wife once again, uh, leaning into the, he's, he's definitely going out. This uh, speech, which got tweaked um, somewhat, uh, there was a point at which I almost didn't shoot it uh, because, you know, uh, I, we shot a lot of footage, and I thought, well, you know, we know what we're doing here. But um, it became very, very crucial to me. First of all, I thought Chris killed it, and the footage looked wonderful, but most importantly, the idea that Ultron could be right, that the Avengers could just be a destructive bunch of thugs, um, is, is important not only to articulate, but for them to internalize. And... Um, uh, so that you understand their idea of the stakes of what's uh, of what's coming. Keep the fight between us. This again is a sort of frame you would never have seen in the first movie. This very sort of tight close-up long lens thing is is uh, a different vernacular, but. Um, I never felt it was more effective than it was there. Now, this is an interesting piece of, uh, of footage um, because I wrote this scene. We had a very different scene with the Hulk and Ultron, and it did not play. Um, and uh, it was good, but you just we could, we, it didn't fit. And I kept saying, well, we've got to do something else. So I wrote this scene and the scene between the two of them uh, that comes after. Um, and we did it in reshoots. Uh, and what's interesting about it is uh, we never actually got them on the same day. And I'll explain more when we see them again. These pieces bounce. This is on the outside of London, um, so is this. A uh, huge complex where we built this church and where we uh, built that bridge. And um, 
basically turned it into our biggest piece of real estate in, in Eastern Europe. Have you been juicing a little vibranium cocktail? You're looking, I don't want to. And, um, and then where Hawkeye and the Scarlet Witch are is in uh, northern Italy, uh, very close to where the exterior of the fortress, which is actually Fort Bard um, in the Italian Alps, is. So that we still had that European flavor, but we got some old world and some more sort of modern um, and really, you know, give it a realist, realistic feel because unlike every other place we shot, there is no uh, Sokovia. We didn't feel we could take an actual city and rip it out of the ground. Um, that seemed uh, irresponsible even by our standards. Another thing that's this, you know, kind of thing is insanely complex. Um, but made more so by the fact that I was very determined that we would have a passage of time, that there would be a pre-dawn sequence, and then there would be dawn when the sun's just rising, and then um, there would be morning, um, uh, so that we would feel, you know, the toll of this thing, because, you know, I wanted it to feel like it took a lot. And... Um, But inevitably, uh, you end up reorganizing certain things and, and repurposing them. So uh, we had to go in and kind of, um, you know, recolor certain things, make certain things uh, more sort of pre-dawn purple and then brighten up some other things. Uh, occasionally, the seams show, but um, in general, um, they did a really good job of... of keeping it all together and the main plot points were all where, where they were supposed to be so most of the footage was um, we were able to use intact and again Ben Davis our DP who is just a phenomenal master um, really leaned into the, the difficulty of, of what it was he was going to to have to accomplish and, and um, there was so much to get and so much footage and and uh, so much epic stuff, and and uh, and then I started putting, you know, restrictions of time and when we could shoot, and um, and he uh, he just you know worked it all out. It's one of those guys who does not uh, does not ever uh, remark upon the fact that his job is impossible, and uh, I'm grateful for it. The voice in. Uh, Tony's head was uh, originally a different actress, but uh, again, the Girl Friday thing um, was something that I liked very much. But um, and Friday was one of his HUD uh, uh, personalities from the uh, comics. But um, when she came on as American, the only way to establish who she was as sort of different person was to have banter between them, which was literally meant like establishing an entirely new character. Um, after the vision, so to give her the, the accent, it sort of made a little piece of shorthand. When the dust settles, the only thing living in this world will be metal. This is again some of Island's most beautiful work and flying around that place. So um, he's playing the scene uh, with Dominique, uh, one of Scarlett's stand ins. She is playing the scene because they shot them on different days with Sean Marr. 
uh, my old crony from um, Firefly and Much Ado. Uh, he, uh, he seemed like he would be a good fit since we knew we couldn't get them both at the same time. And uh, oddly enough, from that back angle, his jaw looks exactly like Mark Ruffalo's. Um, so it's, uh, it's complicated. Um, it's a classic Marvel problem when you make these giant movies that you can't actually get the actors on the same day. Um, occasionally for intimate scenes. Um, frustrating, but uh, but you work around it. And luckily, Dominique and Mark are both really strong actors and gave their counterparts a lot to work with. This stuff is always deadly. Um, creating some kind of sense of scale that is realistic um, uh, is so difficult. Um, and this work, you know, which is pure digital, is to me just really staggering. But uh, to keep it, um, to keep the sense, and I think in shooting and in in editing, um, not editing, but in uh, in sort of the way we're looking at post viz and kind of setting these things up, uh, I I feel like I could have been clearer about the feeling of of that floating city. This was all added uh, after the fact, uh, but it's one of my favorite bits, and Evans was uh, more than happy to have that little speech. And this was also added uh, to give, you know, a very useful sense of the scale of the thing and, and the height of it. Um, that is Dominique, by the way. She had a bigger role in the film you saw her at the beginning of the film, her and her little brother and, and they had a bigger role. Um, once again, I wanted when uh, she calls out for him to be saved, I wanted uh, them to be more than just extras. I wanted us to know that Pietro knew them and that it was important to save them. And uh, But at the end of the day, um, as I often find in these movies, people really just want to see the Avengers. How could I let this happen? Hey, hey, you okay? Oh, this is all our fault. Hey, look at me. It's your fault. It's everyone's fault. Who cares? Now, are you up for this? This scene obviously is a favorite. Uh, we have what I refer to. It's not, I'm not the first person to use the phrase as inoculation. We're fighting an army of robots, and I have a bow and arrow. None of this makes sense. Where he says the thing we're all thinking, and uh, and it and it plays, and it's also his, you know, his little his little power talk. Um, his little pap, it's, it's, it's emotional. His whole relationship with these characters, um, I knew what I wanted to do with Pietro, and I knew um, that uh, he was going to have a relationship with them, you know, that was incredibly contentious. But part of it came simply from the fact that all of their action together in Italy um, was because it was the first thing we were shooting, and they were the only actors available. Um, and... Uh, Everybody else was off having babies or doing publicity or, you know, making another Marvel movie or one of the 19 movies they had all made during this. I mean, um, it, uh, so they said, well, we're going to start in Italy and you've got these three characters. And so what was a sort of matter of convenience became a real arc. I said, well, okay, then these guys are really going to, they're really going to have a relationship that progresses and means something and, you know for the guy to uh who likes Pietro the least who discounts him completely 
and who is sort of a, a, a father figure to these kids for Pietro to prove himself the truest hero of the bunch by saving him is, uh, is I think, much more interesting and emotional than if he just, uh, if it just happened to happen. This is definitely a point at which um, putting things together, uh, you know, it turns into crowd-pleasing gags um, that are gags. Um, this is a point of the movie where I, um, when we, you know, we're putting it all together, I, I felt uh, a little bit, mm, we've lost the mission. We're, we're, we're doing cool gags, but what we're not doing is setting up, you know, moments so that when something like this happens, uh, it means everything it could. The difficulty in taking something like this is, is not having these moments, it's earning them. It's setting them up and making sure that when they happen, they mean something. This was another specific piece of magic, the idea that she's actually pulling energy out of the ground. Um, for me, there was the idea a little bit of um, she's using Sokovia uh, itself against, which she sort of represents uh, against them. And here, he had a different line. I hate that kid. I really don't like that kid. And I said, mm, maybe say, try, no one will know, or something. And then just riff. And then all of this is just Jeremy, um, uh, which just killed us all on the day and is one of my favorite things in the film. Um, and again, plays very heavily into what's to come. Getting to create the look for these two, um, for the look for their magic um, was extremely exciting. And, and whenever we've got her red up against his blue, it's, it's to me, it's very dazzling. And, and putting, again, that stuff to the movement, it's some of the last stuff to come in. And so you, you're always going, well, I think it looks cool. But then when it finally does um, come together, it's it's much more than that. Obviously, that scene was a little joke moment, but it was also there to show that he can't actually always outrun a bullet. Keep the atomic action doubling back. That could vaporize the city and everyone on it. In addition to... Uh, Next wave's going to hit any minute. The passage of time, we also wanted to obviously go in and out of the clouds um, to change the light up that way. And uh, anything I could do to make Ben Davis's life harder, um, uh, he did. Uh, he used to make my movie look better. So. Cap, these people are going nowhere. Stark finds a way to blow this rock. Until everyone's safe. Everyone up here versus everyone down there. There's no math there. Again, there's a little bit of. I didn't say we should leave. Missing context when she talks about she's ready to die up there. Originally, that had been part of a run of, you know, she was still um, feeling upset about uh, things going south with Banner. But at this point, that's a different relationship. But because it's such a soldier thing, it's still played. And this, um, we're actually using the Alan Silvestri cue from the first time the carrier takes off in the first movie. Uh, we used some of Alan's stuff um, throughout the movie uh, because it really connected us to the other movie when we needed to, and uh, but never more than here. It's you know 
it really does, when we saw the finished effects, which are so beautiful, I thought, oh yeah, this was a science fiction movie at one point. And there, Fury's got his mojo back, he's got his coat back, Hill's back at her station. All of this, uh, that you, the set you see, is exactly what we had. We didn't have any, even any reference of the, uh, the old set, so we had to build a lot of it digitally or take it from tales of shots from the first movie. That shot of the rafts coming out is also one of my favorites. I think it's kind of the mission statement of the movie. And I love Aaron so much in that moment. To bring the carrier back. So, for example, what's behind her is just a shot we took people out of um, from the first movie because we really didn't, I couldn't actually build the entire set again. It's way too big. Getting the two of these guys flying together and, and bantering together again is, uh, you know, nice. Just, just a really nice bit of personal texture and a way to sort of lead us towards um, where we're going with the end of the movie uh, in terms of the Avengers lineup. The reason I had him talking about War Machine in the first place was that, uh, again, like Fury mentioning the Helicarrier, for people who are not familiar with that universe, I, I needed people to know that he has an Iron Man suit that he flies around in and is a superhero, so that when he showed up, um, people wouldn't know, uh, wouldn't not know uh, what that was. Aaron there. Um, is uh, obviously from Captain America 2. I thought his little sequence in Cap 2 was uh, one of my favorite parts of the movie. Um, and so when Fury had collected a bunch of, you know, people to run the carrier, I thought it would be emotionally effective if he was one of them. As long as there is life in my breast, I am running out of things to say. Are you ready? If there's one thing uh, Hemsworth is absolutely great at, it's undercutting. Uh, Thor's pomposity. Um, he can sell the Asgardian thing, but when he gets to do something casual, he's such a delight. This was obviously, again, one of the most difficult and sort of giant 3D friendly shots um, that I insisted. We need this. We need the roller coaster ride. We need to remember that we're up in the air. Uh, and then later on, the process was like, but I also want him to be doing some math. Uh, during it, because the idea that he um, is in the middle of a firefight and he's doing calculations, uh, being a scientist in his head, that for me is, uh, it's what makes him cool and it's what keeps the fighting from, again, just being a, a punch-a-thon. You and Banner better not be playing hide the zucchini. Relax, Shawhead. Not all of us can fly. What's the drill? This is the drill. If Ultron gets a hand on the core, we lose. So this is where the movie kind of unabashedly turns into Rio Bravo. A little bit of Zulu, Dawn of the Dead, uh, it doesn't matter. Um, if you've read the comic books, there's very famous panels by George Perez um, of just a sea of Ultrons attacking the Avengers, and that to me um, was what I wanted to evoke. Um, I also think that um, 
the work of Brian Hitch, who did The Ultimates, which is really, in many ways, the uh, father of the, uh, the MCU, um, particularly of the Avengers, uh, is uh, that style of very muscular um, action is going on here. But most importantly, what's going on here is not a sort of laid out literal fight. Um, the detail work in the backgrounds of shields and arrows and the idea of all the teamwork and all of the, uh, um, the things that are going on. What specifically is going on is much less important to me in this than the idea of this fight, than the feeling of it, um, rather than uh, set up specific stakes beyond we must protect this and here they all come. Uh, and I, what I wanted to do was just show the, f the feeling of an Avenger. The, I, it's the closest I feel like I've ever come to panel art. And to be specific, Thor there has ripped out someone's spine and head and is hitting other people with his head, which means that this movie is at least on one level awesome. Um, it's, uh, I feel about the sequence that uh, there are more missed opportunities that I should have spent months more fine-tuning it, but I also feel that it is as beautiful as anything um, I've ever uh, put on film. It's, uh, it, it's, I feel this combination of despair and extraordinary elation when I, when I watch it. I just want, again, I want to make sure I've earned it, and I want to spend even more time watching Thor hit people with somebody's head. The rhythm of it was was done very musically. That big hero theme is another piece by Danny Elfman and, and uh, among the most important, if not the most important, in the film. And uh, um, uh, it came in somewhat late in the process, but then uh, Jeff Ford um, sort of retweaked everything to sort of fit its rhythms. Its rhythms were very close to what we had been using, but, um, but then it, uh, uh, you know, we had to play to it and... Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's the musicality and the physicality are what interests me there. Um, I wished I could have hurt more people. I wished I could have taken more of a toll on the, on the characters. Uh, the complexity of not just how we shot it, but when we had all the people and, and what came before and after what meant that... Uh, you couldn't be as specific as I would have liked in that sense, but it's still, it's still, that sequence is, for me, the reason we show up. And this sequence is, for me, the reason I show up, where two people are in an apocalypse talking about uh, eating in the dining room. Um, that says more about their relationship than uh, anything else I could have done, and, and it's something you know, that I always love about Marvel is that they're not afraid of that conversation. Um, even at this late and very sort of momentous stage, they're like, yeah, you should totally have, they should talk about redecorating. That's, that makes perfect sense. And uh, I don't feel that there are a lot of studios who would have uh, embraced that in the same way. Again, you can hear someone saying, you're safe now, as he gets on the boat. Um, I'm just... Uh, I couldn't be more shameless about trying to convince everyone that uh, Hawkeye's going to die. Oh, no. One more time. Back in. Yeah, no. It's over. This uh, also came late, and I think it was Jeff Ford's idea that, uh, that 
Uh, we knew Thor was going to hit it uh, from up top, but the idea that Iron Man's down below um, came late. Iron Man's action usually gets enhanced late in the film because, like the Hulk and Ultron, he's not there. He doesn't exist. That's a CGI character. And so you think you know what you want him to do, and then um, uh, you find, wait, there's a way, there's a way to up the stakes here. Um, this is another thing that I feel like the studios wouldn't let you do, to have him just singing like that to himself. Um, and then getting you know, genuinely brutal. Um, I wanted this to be unlovely. And, and when I said to Jeremy, just look at it and know that your death is imminent um, and that you're okay with it, his, the look on his face was um, priceless. And the cut to Wanda with the sound of what's going on here uh, before anything happens is revealed, rather. It's also great. I almost didn't want to cut to that overhead shot of him because he did that fall just face-planted so beautifully um, that uh, I wanted people to see. Uh, but then I couldn't resist the uh, hyperbole of being directly above him when he landed on the ground. Emotional hyperbole is, let's face it, that's my jam. We shot that, uh, that's one of the first scenes we shot and then we reshot it um, where she, uh, uh, they have their last exchange and then she senses he's dead and, and goes down on her knees. And the first time we shot it, she wept. Um, and um, just an enormous amount of snot came flying, just pouring down. Uh, it was very realistic. It was kind of awesome. Um, she was laughing about it afterwards. She's like, I probably should have warned you that would happen. Um, but uh, so we, we dialed that back the second time. Uh, but she still conveys such extraordinary grief and gravitas and... and uh, her bit with Ultron after is uh, is one of my favorite things I've ever put on film. As much as uh, this process was difficult, um, that's something I end up saying a lot in this movie. He had different lead-ins to her line. I just did. I liked the idea that what he said was something to try and help her, that he couldn't quite get past the fact that, you know, they had a relationship, that, they, that she meant something to him. Now, see, there's the shield. That, uh, the severing of his chest is in the exact shape of the shield. Um, it's hard to talk over that scene because... Uh, they're so good in it. But I did, so I guess I must be awesome. And then, of course, the final problem. And, of course, Iron Man's in the thick of it, in his own literal, uh, when I say literal, um, 
sort of visual hell. He's, he's down below in the inferno, and uh, you know, Thor is up above. And so much of this movie is about that juxtaposition. Um, this part is, uh, um, uh, I refer to as Can You Read My Mind? It's a little shamelessly romantic, but then uh, that's not about theme, that's just about the two of them. It's about the mission, which was to save everyone. And uh, um, obviously it's also a nod to the romance they will later share um, in the comic book universe. I can't say what's going to happen in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But, um, uh, but emotionally it, it takes that big falling rock and turns it into something more the job's finished now i need you to turn this bird around okay we can't track you in stealth mode so help me out this is another um really beautiful performance um i shot mark on a mocap stage uh doing this but again, uh, ILM has to bring their own uh, integrity to what his face is doing. And what was great was that they, you know, we, the, we kept saying, less. And then that shot, um, Scarlett was doing her ADR. And so for the first time was seeing his side of, of that. And she looked at it, um, that beautiful shot from behind him pulling away. And she just went, oh my God, it's so emotional. Fat man in a little car. Um, so that sequence is only ever known as Fat Man in a Little Car. Of you. And then this is the thing. This uh, this scene is kind of the reason I I referred to it as Miller's Crossing. Um, the mob hit. The uh, the uh, you know Godfather. Can you get me off for old times? Um, it's uh, the civilized kill is always a beautiful scene, but. This is where I feel you get to know the vision in a way that uh, that you hadn't before, and you get to make a summer tentpole movie where um, you actually get to say that humanity is doomed. They're doomed. Yes. But a thing isn't beautiful because it lasts. It's a privilege to be among them. That was just a nice thing to think. And then to have somebody say, but the first time, because they did these scenes together, so often people don't, but they did all of their scenes together together. The first time James ever said, they're doomed, and he said, yes. And he's established himself as the most noble, worthy of the hammer. And yet he says, yes, without pause. Um, that for me is, uh, it, it raised what hairs, I, what few hairs I have left, it raised them right up to hear the sympathy and certitude with which he said that. Uh, just loved it. This, obviously, the best years of our lives moment. The, I'm standing at the kitchen, and I know he's there. show back in action and of course our boy Stellan um, the idea that 
everyone we know is is in on it, is a part of the, the new world. And that everything everybody's moving and shaking, except her. One of our tech boys flagged this. This uh, whole sequence, we, because it was a place in London, a convention center, it was beautiful. Um, and the question of how to dress it, uh, we spent a long while on. And then um, I suddenly was like, wait a minute, don't dress it. Don't put anything in it. Don't put anybody in it. Just have a big, beautiful space with these guys. Um, and uh, um, because uh, that's enough. In fact, it expresses her emotional state uh, much better, and it also gives it an epic quality that, um, despite the hugeness of the place in the wider shots, uh, you don't get in the same way. Nothing lasts forever. Trouble, Ms. Romanoff. No matter who wins or loses, trouble still comes round. This next bit, um, I, uh, I had said, we did this in, in reshoots, and I had said, we, we really need something that expresses the gravitas of what they've been through. And, and Kevin said, or you, they could make that joke about the hammer that you almost put in. I'm like, okay, yeah, let's do that instead. And I think ultimately uh, my desire for people to internalize what's happened and, and pay for it is, is sometimes uh, not the best instinct uh, for these summer movies. I am at war with my own intentions when I make these things because I want to make a fantasy, um, but I'm offended by the irresponsibility of the fantastic. Um, and... Uh, so uh, it's the, the tone of the thing is um, something I, I have to uh, I have to play with very specifically. And there is a moment uh, where I feel that I that I that I got it wrong, and um, putting the score together was you know came late in the process, later than it should have. And there was one cue that we had two versions of, and it's Cap's revelation that he. Uh, or is telling Tony that he um, is only that he's at home here at uh, here in this place. We we had a cue that expressed a kind of doubt and poignancy in that, and I suggested, well, what if we tried putting in a version of the Captain America theme there, and everyone liked that better, and in and I mean absolutely everyone. Um, but every time I watch it now, I go, no, should have had the doubt because I don't want him to be saying, oh, no, it's great, I found my home. I want him to be saying, I'm a guy who never will. And this is not, I'm not satisfied. I'm not proud of this, that this is what I am. Um, it's just something I've come to accept. So that music cue will drive me crazy, like many things, until the end of time, possibly because I'm already crazy. The whole point of this movie, and part of the conflict I described, was the idea of closing, of changing, of something that ends, and yet something that's uh, just beginning. And uh, luckily, because the Avengers are defined by the idea that um, they are always changing, they literally changed their roster in their second issue, um, uh, it was easy to have my cake and eat it to say, 
we've lost something. You know, Camelot is over. But also to say, exciting adventures yet to come. Um, some people have uh, complained that uh, uh, Cap left that sentence unfinished. I've never been more certain of anything in my life that, uh, that he needed to. It was in the script exactly as that. Um, first time I ever told Evans how the movie was going to end, he just lost it. Um, because you don't say. You don't finish the sentence. You let the audience finish the sentence. And you also say, there is more. Um, this whole sequence uh, is my favorite of these that I've seen. Uh, the idea of um, the post-credit sequence of Marvel are always really good. This one I thought is lovely because it, the idea that they have been uh, immortalized in statue. There's a statue at the beginning you see before Grand Central, which has, which is the heroes of New York, and it's cops and first responders, and and um, we had whole, had a whole sequence about the unveiling of that, and then it was taken out, but we made sure we kept it in the, the statue in the movie. So to put these guys in marble, um, it elevates them, but to me it also grounds them in a way of saying, yeah, uh, these guys were veterans of a war that they, you know, fought to the last, and in some cases gave the last full measure and um, that uh, they should be remembered and that, and that an era is over and as this is my goodbye to the world of Marvel it seems like a nice one but there's still this guy this was exactly what I pitched Again, before the movie. Loki failed. Red Skull failed. Ronan failed. Um, so, it's time. Third movie, it's time. Um, which is somebody else's problem. There is one more thing I have to say. I'm not going to speak through 48 minutes of credits, though you should watch them all because every person listed in them did extraordinary work and I'm enormously grateful um, and I apologize to all the people I didn't mention um, because I should have but uh, I did promise that I would say something about uh, an Easter egg um, I don't uh, usually I try not to be self-indulgent um, I just had a feeling that there was a connection between the evils of this world and the evils of all worlds um, and there is that one shot in Thor's dream of three guys in an archway wearing three masks and the masks are very expressionistic so it might be hard to see exactly what they are and we only held on them for a moment um, but uh, and they were originally seen over a line of Thor's that was taken out where he says it's been a long journey and dark forces followed me and uh, the idea that there's something bigger at stake, which we hit in his Revelation of the Jewels, but Dark Forces was when he cut to those guys. And um, uh, basically, though expressionistic, they are based on um, three animals, a wolf, a ram, and a heart. And uh, some of you might know what that means to me. Thank you for listening. We're done.